You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where it's nice every once in a while to not have to put much thought into what this intro song should be. listeners and welcome back to another episode of just one of the guys a green lantern podcast hosted by the two true freaks internet radio network my name is sean eagle and what i love doing specifically on the show is talking about comics primarily the green lantern comics starting with cover date june 1990 and ending with cover date november 2004 and putting a special emphasis on the characters of guy Gardner and kyle Rayner. And I'm glad that you've come back for this episode, because last week we covered a big milestone. Episode 150 premiered Kyle losing his ion power and getting his brand new funky uniform designed by Jim Lee. And this time out, we're going to take a look at his first adventure back as Green Lantern. Is it going to be spectacular? Is it going to be a dud? Is it going to be something in the middle? You'll just have to find out. Chances are, it's still going to be pretty good as Judd Winnick and Dale Eaglesham has really been knocking it out of the park so far. Plus, we're also going to be taking a look at a second book this time that came out around the same time that Green Lantern 151 came out, except it's not covering a story with Kyle Rayner or Guy Gardner. In fact, the Green Lantern in it is Alan Scott, and the story is entitled Green Lantern, Brightest Day, Blackest Night. It's an interesting little trade paperback that came out, like I said, around the time of this book, and kind of retells one of the early stories of Greenland and Alan Scott. In fact, it deals with Solomon Grundy fighting against Alan Scott, plus some weird mass Nazis who are trying to take over the world by using a device that makes people invisible. It's an odd concept, but an actually really enjoyable book. Unfortunately, better than some of the other uh, prestige format books that I've done in the past, uh, Kind of looking at you, Last Will and Testament. You just didn't do, for me, what this book did. Plus, this is also, like I said before, a sort of subtle retelling of an early Green Lantern story, and I'm looking forward to getting into coverage of that. Plus, it's been a while since I've been had a chance to read emails, so I'm going to go ahead and dip into the email bag and check what you guys have written. Last time I was able to read emails on a solo show, I was kind of... Well, the email bag was kind of empty, but you guys have stepped up and sent dozens of emails in, and I am really, really excited to get to that. So after I take this podcast promo break, I'll be coming right back to your emails, and then our coverage of Green Lantern number 151. Stay tuned, folks. Hey Paul, what's up? Ah, not much. What's going on? I'm I'm just a little confused lately. I yeah. What else is new? Well, you know, m- more than usual. I try to go to get the shows that we just put up, and I was having problems finding them. Well, we having trouble finding. Well, I couldn't find Back to the Bins. I couldn't find Avengers Spotlight. Of course, you can only find those when I actually edit them. <clears throat> and um, <laughs> oh, you took the words you know, right out of my they're, they're on the feed, Bill. Yeah, I know. That's where I went. I went to the feed, but they weren't there. You no, know, you got to go to the feed. You got to go to the back to the bins feed. The back to the bins feed. What's yeah, that? Back to the bins feed. You got to go to iTunes. You look for look up back to the bins, and you subscribe to the back to the bins feed. But I went to Two True Freaks. Yeah, we're on that feed too. What? Where? On the feed. Okay, wait a minute. Wait a minute. So you're saying that we're on? All right, so if I wanted to go find the shows that we've done, I'm going to go on to iTunes, and I'm going to click on Back to the Bins, 
and I'll find Back to the Binge and Avengers Spotlight in the feed. Exactly. I don't even know what I'm talking about! Bill, you go to the feed, you subscribe to the show, you subscribe to whichever show you want, and then you get it. It's that simple, you just gotta go to the feed. What show do I want? Back to the Binge. Where? And Avengers Spotlight. Oh, I'm so confused. They're on iTunes. They're on what? TwoTrueFreaks.com. You want them, uh, you get them. They're you all got there them? For you. All the uh, shows are there. They're still all available, Bill. All right, on the so... Feed. The feed. If you say feed one more time, I'm going to break your arm. Uh, Scott, could you tell him... Hey, man, don't, don't drag me into this, because uh, it's no skin off my ass. I'm on all the feeds. Hi, I'm Gene Hendricks. You may remember me from such shows as The Hammer Podcasts and The Quantum Cast. I'd like to tell you about some special shows that I'm doing with some of your favorite podcasters. These shows are all about the live-action versions of comic book characters, and I'm calling them... Legends of the Superheroes! In each episode, we'll be looking at a different TV show or movie featuring characters like... Dr. David Banner. And let's not forget about the non-superheroes, such as... Swamp Thing. Captain William Buck Rogers. And many more. Look for the Legends of the Superheroes specials under the Hammer Podcasts at TwoTrueFreaks.com. And we are back. And I'd like to thank Mr. Gene Hendricks because, well, it may be out by this time. I'm not certain what his uh, drop schedule for his shows is. But Gene actually had me on an episode of Legends and the Superheroes where we talked about a certain movie that deals with a certain character that, well, I really enjoy talking about. Not bearing the lead there, am I? It's Green Lantern, yes. And if you're expecting us to go in there and basically eviscerate the entire movie, well, you might be a little surprised. Hopefully by the time this episode is out, Gene will have that episode out, and you can hear what we have to say about the movie. Uh, I definitely would say, regardless of whether it's not out or not, go check out Gene's podcast. He's starting to get stuff going back with uh, Legends of the Superhero, plus the Hammer Strikes podcast, and supposedly, very soon, the Quantum Cast is going to be coming back. All of those can be checked out on the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, and you should definitely check them out. But for right now, what we're going to be checking out is some email. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and the first letter we have today comes from my good friend over at the Vault of Starling Monster Horror Tales of Terror and his own podcast, Earth Destruction Directive. It's the incredible one, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. And Luke writes his, Luke entitles his email with the title of Watch Out Universe, Kyle Has His Eye On You. Get it? Eye on because you, you get it. Anyway, he says, Sean, hey man, I just finished listening to episode 146 and wanted to take a few minutes to write in. I'm really enjoying the story of Kyle's ascent to, into seeming godhood along with your coverage of it. I remember vaguely hearing about this at the time of publication, but in 2002, if it wasn't Flash or Power Company, it was pretty much outside my radar when it came to DC. What I'm enjoying about this story is that it's taking a character with a well-defined personality and set of powers and spinning him onto his ear for a natural progression of the story, not as some tie-in to some event or something. This is similar to what we saw with Bo Smith with Guy Gardner back in the Warrior days, where a guy grew and changed based on his experiences and not because editorial snapped their fingers and things changed. I'd like to pause for a second and say that's a very astute commentary on that. This was something that was a natural progression in the story that didn't feel like it was mandated by editorial to be done. This felt like this is how Judd Winnick wanted to develop the character and this is how he wanted to take it. And it doesn't have any of that feeling like, oh, this needs to happen because the next event is coming up and we're going to need a powerhouse behind them and we need to give Kyle some superpower and able to uh, defeat the villain or whatever. This just felt like a natural part of the storytelling. And I'm glad you kind of linked that to the uh, Bo Smith run where Bo was able to take this character and develop him in whatever way. I'd say there was more editorial maneuvering in that one specifically because Bo was limited or sort of dictated in what he had to do with the whole morphing thing but I think the parallels are really good look it's not and that's a good catch I gotta gotta commend you on that 
He continues saying, Kyle has slowly been amassing these new powers, and his whole persona changes once he embraces that change, for good or bad. The consequences must fall where they will. The sequence with Kyle and Hal and the all-power or whatever reminded me of a moment from the rightfully critically reviled Chuck Austin run on Avengers. Hmm. When the new Captain Britain, Kelsey Lee, chooses the Sword of Might over the Amulet of Right, she looks at Brian Badcock and Megan, then the rulers of the Omniverse, and says, I made the wrong choice, didn't I? To which Megan, Megan, I'm not certain, I haven't read this run of the Avengers, re responds, There is no right or wrong choice, only actions and consequences. Actions and consequences are what good storytelling should be about, I think, whether those actions are the words a character says or the choice that they make. Kyle's choice will have consequences, of that I have little doubt. I compare this sort of seismic shift in Kyle negatively to what we are seeing currently in these over in the Superior Spider-Man. In that book, Tony Stark is essentially a supervillain because editorial snapped their fingers. Axe has happened, and now Tony is essentially unrecognizable. Oh, that's horrible. I'm not glad to hear that that the superior the, uh, the superior Iron Man is mucking up Tony's storyline. Well, there you go. Going back to the email, it says, There's no progression or growth, only wholesale change for the sake of wholesale change. Kyle's change into Ion was built and built, and it makes sense. And now I'm just excited to see where this roller coaster goes from here. Looking forward to hearing more, so keep up the good work. Luke. Then he says, P.S. I feel that I should clarify when I say consequences in this email. I'm not referring to the consequences that is trademark Alan and Emily Middleton, 2014, all rights reserved. Well, that, that's that's good. At least we laid foundation and we don't have to pay them for uh, the usage of that. Then he has post-postscript. Amusingly, when you and Chad mentioned Jeff John several times in this episode. Oh, wait, he said, amusingly, after you and Chad mentioned Jeff John several times in this episode, when Green Lantern 146 was published, the Flash issue that month was 182, entitled Absolute Zero. This is the first of John's trademark rogue profile issues at DC and something of a minor landmark for fans of Captain Cold and the Flash rogues. Just thought it was a neat coincidence. Yeah, I know Jeff Johns was uh, starting starting to write and starting to get his stuff out at DC at this time. In fact, I haven't really mentioned it, but I think if you look at some of the editorial pages, or if you look at the indicia at the beginning of the book, Jeff Johns is one of like the co-executive writers or something. He has some sort of, you know, main title in the book, in, in the indicia, you know, whether it be editor or something like that. But yeah, Jeff Johns is starting to uh, appear a bit more in the books and, It'll be interesting to see how things tie in with Jeff Johns and how the rest of the story goes and the way it uh, syncs up with Jeff Johns' idea of Green Lantern in the future. But thank you, Luke, for writing in. Our next email comes from my good friend to the Great White North, Mr. Scott Davis, and he writes in with the title 1001 Emerald Knights and Dragonlord. Uh, he starts out the email saying, Hi, Sean. I was able to get a few of these series recently, and I'd like to pass along my thoughts. With Green Lantern uh, 1001 Emerald Knights, he said, I really enjoyed this Elseworlds story. The artwork by Rebecca Gway was great, too. I'm actually very unfamiliar with the original 1001 Knights, so this was quite new to me. I love that the genie was Kilowog, and I don't have too many comments about this issue, but overall it was great. Yeah, um... It was an interesting story. Uh, it obviously paralleled a lot of the things that happened in the 1001 Nights story by uh, Sherzada, I guess. I don't know how to pronounce that properly. But uh, it was a really fun time. And Robert Willing, uh, he's still looking to get his uh, Elseworlds podcast out, but it was great having him on the show. I'm hoping I'm hoping he gets that Elseworlds podcast going because I can't wait to listen to that. Um, uh, yeah, the artwork was neat. It did have a very... A very Vertigo-type vibe, which was fine, but it just felt a bit off for Green Lantern. It was... It was... It, it's hard to explain. It was colorful, it was interesting, but it just felt that it didn't really fit in the whole Green Lantern aesthetic. But maybe that was what they were trying to do, just break out a little bit. Going back to the email he says about Dragonlord, he said, This was another great Elseworlds story, and the part by Paul Galassi was amazing throughout all these three books. In issue 1, Jade Moon looks amazing on page 6, and there was a great scene on pages 25 and 26 where Zhang Li didn't recognize the old guy that is bringing him food for the last three years, and the old guy gives him a hard time about it. 
I agree. I thought it was very ridiculous that Jong left his ring in the dirt because he feels that he wants to prove his heart, mind, and spirit. If I had that, it had that are you serious feeling to it. The sex scenes in book two were hilarious. Yeah, that's where, you know, just you're, you're being chased by people. You just escaped from this mad emperor and people are trying to shoot at you. And, oh, we just decide in the middle of the forest to stop, drop, and roll around in the hay. Yeah, that was odd. Both times with Zhang atop. Oh, okay. Well, yes, I guess that's how they do it in China. Uh, maybe. Way to mix it up, guys. Again, Zhang wants to prove himself without his ring. I agree, it's really getting old that he wants to keep doing this. In book three, you make a great point about how Zhang shouldn't be pulling an air out of Jade Moon. Thanks for the gross images you put in your mind about drowning in your own fluid. Yeah, that's one of those things. Uh, in fact, I think on a recent Walking Dead Wednesday, we talked about uh, Daryl getting an arrow through his uh, side and how that's basically gone through a large portion of, it looked like it probably would have gone through a large portion of his large intestine. So when he pulls that out, he's basically leaking, leaking waste into his abdominal cavity. That's not good at all. Yeah, try and get that out of your mind. He says, I'm surprised John didn't take Jade to see her son one more time before she died. It seemed a bit selfish to me and took me out of the story a bit. It's a bit comical that John took her to die at the same place that they had sex on their magical carpet ride. Well, you know, it was one of their happy places, so you take her to die at your happy place. Even though it's probably covered with their DNA. Ugh. <clears throat> Back to the email. Overall, I really enjoyed both of these series, and I wouldn't hesitate to recommend them to anyone. Thanks, Sean, and have a great week, Scott. Well, thank you, Scott, for writing in. I hope the weather up in uh, Canada is treating you well. I know as the time of recording, there's the big nor'easter going on in in the uh, eastern, northeastern part of the United States, and it's winter and cold, and I've also recently talked to Blaine Dowler, and he's told me how it really gets miserable in portions of Canada. So I'm hoping you're staying warm and you're enjoying your winter time. But after that, we've got one more email. It's kind of a long one, but I will include this in. This one is from Ben Perlman, and it's entitled Episode Comments. He writes in, Hello again, Mr. Ingle, and happy 2015. Well, happy 2015 to you too, Ben. Thanks for writing into the show. He says, I hope your holiday season was enjoyable and the New Year's treating you well. Happy belated birthday, by the way. Well, thank you very much. Uh, for those of you who don't know or who don't care, my birthday is on the 1st of January, so yes, it's already passed. Thank you for the uh, birthday comments. I appreciate it. He says, I've been faithfully listening to your podcast, enjoying them all, and just completed number 146, as, and, and the just completed number 146 was no exception. I have some quick comments and questions on past issues and future ones if you will be patient with me. Hopefully it won't be too long. Issue 142, House on Fire Part 2. On the last page of the issue, Kyle and Jade are talking about Effigy, and Kyle says he's your brother. I remember this is an error, and later he's in later issues, letter column addresses it, but for the life of me, I can't remember which one. I wasn't able to find it yet. I don't believe you mentioned this, and I was wondering what a copy of the comic you used to prepare for your podcast in case you have a corrected version. Actually, I have, uh, for the, for the um, comics, I have the actual paper version. So I'll have to go back and look at that and see if I can find out about that. Hold on one second. Yeah, I just did a quick bag pull and check. And yes, it did. in my comic, it did say, he's your brother. And I don't know why I didn't comment on that. Maybe I just thought it was Kyle being kind of snide and sarcastic, but who knows? He says, with issue 143, the uh, Joker's last laugh story said, I didn't really enjoy this issue or the Joker's last laugh storyline at all. That's probably because it had Graven in there, and Graven is not one of my favorite characters. Issue 144, The Battle of Fire and Light, and he said, did you enjoy, uh, he said, did enjoy this issue, and it had a great setup for the next one, which was 145, which he said he loved the issue and the fight between Kyle and Nero. I agree with you that the appearance of the Cordians took away from some of the action and had no real purpose. However, I did like the appearance of Hal Jordan again, but I don't really see any point in it. Then he says, as a side question, I don't know how familiar you are with Hal Jordan as the Spectre, but maybe you happen to know the answer. When Hal Jordan became the Spectre after Day of Judgment, it was mentioned, I think in the JLI tie-in, that no one would know or remember that Hal Jordan was the Spectre. However, it seems that every time that, uh, however, it seems that every time Hal appears in the Green Lantern comics, he is known. 
I've been able to find an answer to what seems like a contradiction. Any thoughts? I'd have to say, since I haven't read the JLA tie-in, I wouldn't know if they specifically mentioned that Hal would not be remembered as the Spectre, but I think it's just one of those things that it's not necessarily 100% known that people forget it until they encounter Hal. Maybe that's the sort of no prize whenever Hal comes back as the Spectre. They go, oh, Hal, I didn't know that you were the Spectre. I'm glad you're here. And then when Hal disappears, they forget it. Or it could just be comics. Let's go with that as well. Going back to the email, he talks about issue number 146, Hand of God Day One. He said, I really like the beginning of the Ion storyline and the many things Kyle was able to do. Whenever I read this issue and I get to the part where he's on the planet Tendax and stops the war, you see a panel with a little girl walking with her parent and she is smiling. Every time I see this picture, I always flip-flop between whether she is smiling a real smile since the war is on and whether those big brother is watching smiles. She might be afraid that Kyle will wish her into the cornfield. What do you think? Yeah, that was one of those ones where you can interpret it either way. It's like whether the girl is actually happy that the planet is completely free of war and violence because of this guy who's standing over there making sure that nothing bad happens, or whether she's just doing that out of fear. And I'm glad that Winnick didn't really address that and specifically put that in there because it lets you believe that Kyle might be overstepping his bounds in this this Ion character. That was one of the things that in the ha- or in the uh, Power of Ion storyline, they really didn't cover very much. We had that one issue where he's dealing with everything on Tandax, but now that he's not Ion anymore, is the whole thing going to start up again? Is this ever going to be touched on again? It'll be interesting to see, and yeah, that was a thing that kind of you could interpret either way. But getting back to the email, he says, now some comments on future issues at the time of this writing. And since we've already covered this issues, I don't have a problem with covering this now. He said, issue 147, standing up. While it was a decent issue, I failed to get the purpose for it, especially since Kyle is barely in it. Barely in it. Maybe it's just to get John healed and prepare him for his role as future GL issues. Yeah, I think that was it. It was essentially to get John standing up again and get him out of the wheelchair. And it was a nice story. It was nice to kind of get in John's head, but again, I felt the very MASH-like ending just felt a bit cliched. It wasn't that it was bad, but it just felt like it's been done before. Issue 148, uh, Ben says, The Hand of God Day 3, Lost and Found. I did enjoy the beginning of this issue, the battle between Jade and Sonar, but once that ended, I thought the comics was just okay. I don't know what I was expecting, but when Jade got her powers back, I felt it was very anticlimactic. To me, it was like, do do you want it? Yes. You sure? Yes. All Alrighty, done. Also, I did not like the way Kyle's costume looked at the end. It looked too baggy for my taste. Yeah, that one was the one with Brandon Bordeaux doing the artwork in it. And I liked his artwork. It was It was very 90s. And having, like I said, having Dan Davis ink it gave me a kind of feel of the Guy Gardner warrior issue. But yeah... His his depiction of Kyle was a bit off. Kyle looked too much of, sadly, of too much of a dude bro, if you know what I'm saying. So there's that. Issue 149, Hand of God Day 4. While Superman appeared to start the issue very standoffish, it was nice to find out that it was for Kyle's own good. Also, the way Kyle stopped the invasion, if it was someone else, one might think that he was being smug. However, it was a good issue to mention the fine line a superhero has between helper and keeper. Yeah, I agree. And having Superman deliver that sort of fatherly, parental advice to Kyle was what really made that issue great. Coming from anyone else, that would have felt out of place. But having Superman, a man, well, the superhero in the DC universe, the he's, he's the ultimate person that you should look up to for doing the right thing. Having him deliver those lines is what made that story a good one. Finally, issue 150, beginning in, Beginnings End, I like the conversation between Kyle and Hal and how Hal can't lie. While I'm sure it was a character-building moment, I feel that the issue could have been done without him meeting his father, for I don't know really what he got out of it. Maybe you can explain. Well, I think the the parallel basically is Kyle had no father figure, and 
him going back to meet his father sort of parallels Ganthet's having to become a father. And there's a lot of parental issues and having to learn how to raise children storyline in the, in, in the story. So I think while absolutely un well, not absolutely, but somewhat unnecessary to know what Kyle's father was, it kind of worked in the story that the entirety of the story was about parenting essentially. So maybe that's it. I really liked when Kyle reignited the lantern and brought the little guardians back. Ben says the changes Kyle makes to his ring are interesting, but I don't think they are ever used again. And I really like the new green lantern costume. Whatever, what happens to everything Kyle did as ion. Once he gave up the power, I'm especially curious about the planet Tendax, where the fighting resumed or not. I don't think they ever bring it up again. Well, like I said, I haven't read these issues, so I'm, I'm as in the dark as you might be. Ben says, sorry, the email was a lot longer than I expected, and I'll understand if you don't read it all on the podcast. I look forward to the rest of your iron coverage and beyond. Thank you for your time and patience, Ben Perlman. Well, Ben, I did read it all on the, on the podcast, and I appreciate you writing in. Those were some good points and some good questions. I hope I kind of answered them. Uh, I think I did well enough. But thank you again, Ben, for writing in. Since we're almost at the 30-minute point in the podcast, I'm going to go ahead and close up the email bag. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Luke. Thanks, Scott. And thanks, Ben, for writing in. If you'd like to write in, the email address, of course, is just one of the guys podcast at gmail.com. Write in. I'll read your emails on the, on the show, uh, provided I don't have a guest on and don't read the emails. But for now, let's go ahead and move into our coverage of Green Lantern number 151. Green Lantern number 151 was cover dated August 2002 and released on June 12, 2002 with a cover price of 225 US and 375 Canada. The title was Back in the Saddle. So, you know where the theme music came from today. The writer was Judd Winnick, penciler again was Dale Eaglesham, inker Rodney Ramos, colorist Moose Bowman, letter was Kurt Hathaway, the assistant editor was Nachi Castro, the editor was Bob Shrek, and the cover was by Jim Lee and Scott Williams. 10.37 a.m., downtown Manhattan, generic bank, and a quartet of potty-mouthed bank robbers. This is how Kyle Rayner makes his return as Green Lantern to the city that never sleeps. Using some construct elves to tie up the perps and some construct soap to wash out their mouths, Cal easily handles the situation and then garners the thanks of the onlooking customers. After making sure that the police has have the robbers taken care of, Cal flies over Central Park where he witnesses a shirtless man mugging a couple of female choggers. He subdues the mugger as well, but once police arrive, they find that the man lived on the Upper East Side and had over $300 in his wallet. Wondering if there's a rash of freakouts happening in the city, Green Lantern heads out after giving the attending officer an autograph. Cut to the offices of Feast Magazine, where Kyle and a hopped-up-on espresso Terry Berg are headed to a meeting with magazine editor Rena Stone. After a chilling welcome from the receptionist, the duo get an even angrier scolding from Rena who seems a bit out of sorts. And by a bit out of sorts, I mean she decides to rant about running the magazine while proceeding to take her top off. Awkward. Suddenly, Rena snaps out of her fugue state, and Kyle politely covers her up with her jacket. Just then, they hear a commotion outside and find an intern has stripped down to his BVDs and is squatting on the receptionist's desk, ranting about the million eyes coming to get him. Eek. And that is just the beginning of the chaos, as Kyle and Terry look outside to see the entire populace of downtown Manhattan has gone cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Looking for a distraction, Kyle tells Terry that he's going to get a hold of Jenny to try and help with this, then heads out into the thick of things as Green Lantern. Using the ring, GL bathes the rioters in a river of viscous fluid, slowing them down enough to allow the police and emergency services to take control of the situation. But just as things are getting under control... Green Lantern spies a giant melted gummy bear Ugh. menacing a nearby building. As GL tries to contain it with a construct bubble, but it bursts out and forms into smaller gummy bears, bouncing here and there and everywhere. Wondering just what's going on, Green Lantern follows the green gummy grizzlies back to their source. A cowering, frightened Jenny Lynn Hayden.
All in all, I'd have to say, this isn't a bad return issue for Kyle and his new guys as Green Lantern. It's just a simple story of Kyle fighting simple crimes in New York City. And sometimes that's a heck of a lot better than a giant universe-shaking event. It helps ground the character again, and after his brush with godhood, we kind of needed that. Plus, we get to see some more of the secondary characters, such as Rena as Terry, as well as some phenomenal art by Dale Eaglesham. The ending with Jenny is a little weird, but looking at the title of the trade these issues were collected in, Green Lantern, Brothers Keeper, I'm wondering if this might have to do something with their brother Todd Rice, who's also known as Obsidian. Once again, since I haven't read the stories after this, I'm not certain if that's going to come into it, but I'm certain we'll find out next issue just what the heck's going on here. But going into the specifics about the book, the cover, it seems that Jim Lee and Scott Williams seem to be jonesing for these covers for some reason. I'm I'm okay with the new uniform, but I'm still not quite down with the whole arm and leg ridge thing, which are very prominent here. It's not a bad looking cover. Kyle looks good. The buildings look a little generic, but overall I've seen worse covers and... I guess Jim Lee has some sort of affinity at this time for the new Kyle Rayner design. So, okay. Page one in the caption box says, Kyle gives a lot of information about these guys who are robbing the bank, as well as customers in the bank. It's kind of like, even though he's lost the Iron Power, he's gained a better use of the Green Lantern Power, and can use it like the Ion Power, just not as powerful. He seems to, essentially he seems to be able to be more in tune with who these people are and how he can use the Green Lantern power, just not at the omnipotent or nigh-omnipotent level that he could have with when he was Ion. So it makes him a better, you know, essentially him having the Ion power and losing it has allowed him to better manipulate his power as a Green Lantern, so... I'm interested in where this is going. Page two, I like the design that they're using here, that the rubbers are using a bunch of foul language, which is represented by a bunch of symbols, you know, stars and moons and asterisks, lightning bolts, uh, ampersands, stuff like that. It works better for me in the comic that this is profanity as sort of blurred out profanity, rather than if they were actually using a profanity in the book. However, it, does get a bit over the top, but it's an all right balance. I would rather see this than actual profanity, especially in a Green Lantern comic book. And speaking of the profanity, moving on to page four, all of the language of the robbers is symbolic profanity. And Cal is definitely more used to using his power as he does almost, he's almost doing the Sinestro pose as he makes the constructs. As, as we see him here, he's coming down this flight of stairs with his hands behind him, and he's just letting the ring do all the work. So I think Chad was right in saying that when he was the character of Ion, he was so in tune with the power that he didn't feel the need to do the sort of ring-slinging thing where he put his arm out in front of him and use his fist and ball it up like that. It's It's a nice way to show that Kyle is were accustomed to using the Green Lantern energy, and I, I like the aesthetic design of it. I like the look that Kyle is doing this effortless or effortlessly now. Page six, we get more crazy goings-on in the park, and a sort of weird cliched gag about the police officer wanting an autograph for his niece named Anthony. I'm wondering if this is just because this is so soon well, not really so soon, but this is after the 9-11 events, and they're wanting to promote the police and you know rescue workers of New York in a really positive light, that they're adding scenes with the police and whatever in the books to kind of promote them. It works, but it just seems kind of cliched to me. Page 7, Dale Eaglesham draws Terry to look really young here, and it's not in a bad way. But uh, I think Eaglesham draws him a little shorter than Daryl Banks did, showing a bit more difference in the age between him and Kyle. When Daryl Banks was drawing them, they looked pretty contemporary. And in this one panel here, you see Terry looking like a kid, which is 
which is nice for a change. You know, you get the realization that he's not a mature adult in the same way that Kyle is. He's still a teen trying to figure things out. So I like the look of Terry in this issue. Pages A9, we see that everyone seems to be in a really bad mood for no real reason. And that kind of gets played through through the rest of the book that we don't know exactly what's going on. Which leads us to page 10, where Rena decides to take her top off. And luckily we see her from behind, so it's all very tastefully done. But again, it shows how the people are whacking out. And Eagle Sham does a great job with the artwork here. Everyone looks really nice, and there's a lot of obvious sexualization here of the female characters, but it's done in a tasteful manner, as tasteful as you can, about people disrobing in front of other people for no apparent reason. But don't think that the uh, disrobing is only limited to the females, as we see on page 11, there's a guy who's dropped down to his BVDs and is uncomfortably squatting on a desk while holding up a giant computer monitor, one of those old CRT ones. And this guy's got to have a pretty good ab strength and pretty good arm strength because I remember those things being pretty heavy. And the fact that he's looking like he's getting ready to uh, drop a load on the desk while holding up this thing is... Not only uh, disturbing, but uh, a feat of strength there. So there you go. Page 13, Eagle Sham gets to draw a very, very whacked out crowd scene with people just going bat guano crazy on on the page. We've got another guy in his BBDs. In fact, you know, everyone who seems to be going crazy seems to be taking a lot of their clothing off. In fact, there is one guy who's tastefully hidden who seems to have taken everything off and is reveling in that, plus some guys stealing TVs from a from building and a, a delivery van with the uh, title Kane's Lamps on the side. And I'm wondering if that's sort of an homage to Bob Kane, the, uh, the guy who helped create Batman, along with Bill Finger. Moving on to page 15, Kyle's Green Lantern comes out and creates a giant sort of Willy Wonka-esque foam machine to subdue the crowd. It basically spews out a bunch of foam that immobilizes them. Okay, it's it's an interesting, less invasive way to keep the crowd from going anywhere, but different. Page 17, the uh, giant creepy gummy bear doesn't really look like a monster. But it doesn't really look like a construct as well, because usually the constructs have energy beams going towards them. So you're not really certain what's causing this, but its color is very green, and it's distinctly different from Kyle's emerald energy. So it does sort of play into what we get at the end. And then basically my notes are up until the end, the art is really good. And Jenny on the last page is just stunning with her sort of balled up in a fetal position just saying over and over they're going to kill me they're going to kill me it's it's really phenomenal art here by Dale Eaglesham I'm really liking his stuff it's an interesting idea we don't know what's going on with Jenny could this be something with Kyle and his ion power returning her her latent jade energy power or starheart power back to him that's messing her up you don't know and I guess we'll have to find out in the next issue but that does it for notes and commentary on the issue. Let's go ahead and go through here and see what kind of ads they've got. Front and inside cover is uh, for the Extreme Summer Sweepstakes, which is uh, basically DC, Mad Magazine, and the, uh, I guess the Lillard Company with the Tobacco is Wacko if you're a teen uh, thing. Uh, some of the prizes include a JVC DVD player with a bunch of... Uh, DC movies, including Justice League, Superman and Batman movie, Mr. Freeze movie, The Return of the Joker, plus the Superman and Batman Legacy collections on DVD. Uh, And uh, I guess it's also sponsored by Jolly Time Popcorn, so I guess you could win movies and stuff from them. Then a few more pages in, we get a ridiculously stereotyped advertisement of two... 
very urban, very hip. One of them almost looking like Dr. Dre with the sort of, not Fisher's hat, but the, the weird hat. And they're making, I don't want to say gang symbols, but very stereotypical, like white guy impressed ghetto symbols, something that, that a white you know, executive would say, oh, this is what, this is what the urban people, this is what the black people do. Advertisement for Right Guard Extreme. Why is Right Guard Extreme? Well, because it has a green power strip down the middle of it. I remember this stuff, and I don't remember it lasting very long. And I think this is a really awkward and uncomfortable advertisement for this, because I guess it's trying to to play to the urban hip hop rap loving youth in a way that I think that doesn't capture any of that at all. It's really weird and awkward. They they obviously forgot about Dre. The next page is an ad for a kids pack up at a Subway where you can get little Justice League figures. In fact, uh, you get. Pretty much all of them. Superman, Martian Manhunter, Hawk Girl, Batman, GL, Wonder Woman, and The Flash. It's uh, it's a neat little ad. I wish I could have had some of that stuff. I I never went to Subway at the time and ate there. But if I did, I probably would have enjoyed getting those little things. Next few pages, we get uh, another ad for Tang, which has the orangutan riding on a uh, motorbike saying, Put skid marks on your tongue. Which, if you know what skid marks are, you wouldn't want to be putting them on your tongue if you're thinking of the kind of skid marks I'm thinking of. Ick. A few more pages in, we get an advertisement for Twix peanut butter candy bars. And this one is advertised by a very youthful-looking girl in a beret or golf hat with a sort of midriff-bearing wife-beater shirt, handing off free coupons for Twix uh, peanut butter strip candy bars, cookie bars. So you could cut this out and get a free Twix bar. Nice. Don't cut up your comics, kids. Another ad for Starburst, a square peg for your round hole with a guy putting a uh, orange Starburst in your mouth, or in his mouth. Then an advertisement for, I guess this is the original Transformers on, on DVD. It's from Suncoast Video 1999 for the DVD, or I'm sorry, what, fifty nine ninety five for the DVD box set. It's the first time the, on DVD. I guess it's the original first run of Transformers. Interesting. Then we get an advertisement for Wrigley's Juicy Fruit, which uh, is a, I guess it's a contest where you could win a Nintendo GameCube. Really don't care. See, an advertisement of House Ad for JLA The Destroyers. It's a two-part adventure in JLA 66 and 70, 67. Uh, leading into The Obsidian Age, The Hunt for Aquaman, written by Joe Kelly, with art by Doug Mankey and Tom, Tom Nguyen. Uh, unfortunately, this is a portion of the JLA that I'm very unfamiliar with. Uh, artwork looks neat, though. Uh, uh, Doug Mankey does a good job on it, I would say. So, JLA. The back inside cover is that mosaic ad for Tobacco is Wacko if you're a teen. Thank you, Lillard Company, for filling us out about that. Then you've got, uh, this is going to make people have nightmares. It's the corn nuts again, except this time it's a ear of corn dressed up like a clown. It says, corn gone wrong, corn nuts, ranch flavor. Ugh. That's going to haunt my nightmares. But that does it for the issue. I'm going to take another quick break here, play a couple more promos, and once I get back, I will be doing what I do, which is diving into coverage of Green Lantern, Brightest Day, Blackest Night, number one. See you on the other side. We gotta get out of this place. If it's the last thing we ever do. We In Country has re-upped for another tour and we've been reassigned. Now you can find this complete look at Marvel Comics The Nom on the Two True Freaks Network. So join me, Tom Panneries, for In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics The Nom. Every two weeks at two truefreaks.com. This 
This is Tokyo, once a city of six million people. What has happened here was caused by a force which, up until a few days ago, was entirely beyond the scope of man's imagination. Tokyo, a smoldering memorial to the unknown. An unknown which at this very moment still prevails and could at any time lash out with its terrible destruction anywhere else in the world. Hi, folks. Luke Giaconetti here. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Do you like giant monsters? Or as they're called in Japan, Daikaiju? Monsters like Godzilla, Rodan, Gamera, King Ghidorah, or Mothra? Do you like more obscure monsters, such as Gappa or Yangari? Do you like giant heroes like Ultraman or super robots like the Shogun Warriors? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then I think you might like my podcast, Earth Destruction Directive. I'm a dedicated fan of all things Daikaiju, and I'd like to share that with all of you. Please check out Earth Destruction Directive at twotruefreaks.com. Earth Destruction Directive, where we turn your Daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality. back to get into our coverage of the prestige format story green lantern brightest day blackest night this one was cover dated 2002 and released on june 19 2002 with a cover price of 5.95 us and 9.95 in canada the title of course was brightest day blackest night and the writer was stephen t siegel while the artist was john k snyder iii the letter was Todd Klein, the editor was Dan Raspler, and Green Lantern was created by Martin O'Dell and Bill Finger. Our story opens as an explosion rocks a passenger plane flying top-secret government agents to Gotham City. However, the explosion was no accident, as mass goons calling themselves the Geist Reich take over the plane and assassinate the FBI agents protecting scientist Dr. Meinhardt. The Rotsy thugs then make an unscheduled landing in Slaughter Swamp, a landmark outside of Gotham City, where they plan on meeting up with their contact on the ground to test the device that the plane was transporting. But upon arrival, the Geistreich finds most of their contacts murdered, torn apart as if by some animal. Cut to an express train racing to Gotham City, where Green Lantern Alan Scott meets with his sweetheart Irene Miller, who is hoping on parlaying her career as an investigative reporter into a job with Gotham Broadcasting as a newsreader. The duo discuss her qualifications, as well as omission of her gender from the application, but Irene feels that she's as qualified as any man for the job. She just wonders what brought Alan along with her, and he says that he's only a humble engineer and not interested in anything else. Back at the crash, the Nazis are unloading the cargo and attempting to set up the experiment as the leader, Ahan, senses eyes watching them from the shadows. Ahan threatens to tie up Meinhardt once again by killing off a few innocent passengers, telling him that his cooperation is highly important. And still, over from the shadows, a hulking creature looks on. Over at the broadcasting offices of WGAH in Gotham, Irene is using her feminine wiles to allow her to get a test reading as a news anchor. The ploy works, and Irene begins delivering the latest news to the citizens of Gotham, with Alan as her radio engineer. But suddenly, she's handed a scoop about a plane crash in Slaughter Swamp, where the army is warning civilians to stay away. Alan is concerned and wants to go help, but after the broadcast is over, he needs to get himself and Irene to their hotel in Gotham. Luckily, Gabby Doiby Dickles is waiting to drive them to the Sphinx, where the newest residents of Gotham are spending the night. However, Irene has some plans of her own and slips Doiby at Greenback to secretly meet her behind the hotel as soon as she can slip away. Alan checks the two in and finds that a long-distance call waiting for him in the hotel office is from his doctor. Knowing that his health is near perfect, Alan realizes that the call must be from Dr. Midnight, his JSA teammate, who tells him of a top-secret experiment that crashed in on a plane in Slaughter Swamp. The JSA are on their way, but Alan needs to take the lead. So, bringing forth a lantern, Alan repeats his oath and flies off as the Green Lantern. At the swamp, Dr. Meinhardt manages to break his bonds and runs off to try and find some help. At the same time, Joybee and Irene are arriving in his cab, while Ahan and the Geist Reich are putting the final touches on the Zeta wave machine. 
The Nazis are concerned that they might not have assembled the machine correctly, so they turn to retrieve Meinhardt and only find his loosened bindings laying beside the tree he was tied to. Running through the swamp, Meinhardt stumbles into some quicksand that just happens to be near a patrolling army officer who tries to pull him out. However, Meinhardt is thrown clear of the murk by the undead form of Solomon Grundy, who proceeds to pummel the army officers. As Green Lantern arrives on the scene to help the military, Meinhardt runs back to the Nazis, scared for his life. But before they can test fire the Zeta Wave, Doiby and Irene arrive on the swamp boat, and Irene gets captured while Doiby takes off to look for help. Tired of delays, the Nazis force Meinhardt to fire the weapon, which works like a charm, but brings forth Solomon Grundy upon the group. Luckily, Green Lantern makes the scene just in time. Wondering whether he should deal with the guys in mask, with a tied-up girl being threatened by an alligator, or the swamp zombie, Green Lantern, for some odd reason, heads after Grundy. As GL and Grundy tussle, the guys strike plan on using the Zeta Wave on whoever returns, but Meinhardt says that it will only render them invisible, not kill them. Still fighting, Grundy reveals to Green Lantern that the men were actually Nazis and he plans on killing them, but Green Lantern attempts to spare the Nazi lives as he rescues Irene, the doctor, and his niece by hiding them in the area being zapped by the Zeta Wave. Luring Grundy away from the swamp, he tricks him into standing on the nearby train tracks where the Gotham Express puts an end to the chalky swamp thing. Returning to the swamp, Giel finds Doiby holding the surviving Nazis at gunpoint as the JSA arrives just in time to destroy the Zeta Wave machine. Crisis averted, and Irene told to bury the story of secret Nazi sleeper cells in the U.S., Alan and Irene turn to the news station to broadcast their final report, then return to their former careers in their hometown. Even though this doesn't really deal with anything going on in Green Lantern at the time of this publication, I really enjoyed this as a little diversionary tale. Supposedly, this is a retelling or uh, sort of retcon of sorts of All-American Comics number 61 from October of 1994. This was the actual introduction of Solomon Grundy, and the story is very similar to this one, minus the Nazis and Zeta Wave machine. There's a nice quick synopsis of the tale over at Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics if you want to check that out. Unfortunately, I don't have this specific comic because, well, it's Golden Age and probably very difficult to come from. And unfortunately, I don't have it in my digital copies of the Green Lantern books, so unfortunately I wasn't able to compare and contrast this story to it. The artwork here in this book, however, by John K. Snyder is interesting. It's a painted style with some very sharp penciled lines. Some of the characters do look a bit cartoony, but some of them are really beautiful. There's a nice mixture of the characterizations of it. To be honest, however, I do think I was more impressed with the Fear Itself artwork than I was with this one. Solomon Grundy, in some of the places in this book, just looks really off. That doesn't mean that it was a bad story or horrible artwork, just Fear Itself, for me, was a better book. But I've got a few notes for this, starting off on page two, of course. This being the 1940s, the bad guys had to be Nazis, which... I'm completely fine with. On uh, page 7, I guess Alan and Irene were a thing back in the day before Alan's got the hots for reformed criminals. I guess uh, I'm not certain whether or not uh, the Harlequin had been introduced in Green Lantern's life as a love interest, but I'm certain she's been introduced at least in the Green Lantern comics at the time. Page 11, this is where the artwork looks kind of wonky. Uh, Irene here looks very classic, 1940s, you know, a sort of Lois Lane type character. But this editor that she's talking to, he looks like he's got a shrunken head. The artwork on the male character is just all kind of wonky. Then on page 13, of course, it wouldn't be a Golden Age Green Lantern comic without Doiby Dickles, the... At a candy of the Golden Age Green Lantern. Yeah, nice. Page 14, I'm glad that the JSA plays a minor role in the story. And I'm also glad that they're not letting Dr. Midnight do any of the driving, seeing that technically he's blind. Page 17, it's nice to hear the uh, Golden Age Green Lantern oath. And the look on Alan, of Alan on this page is really nice. Uh, this is where the artwork kind of shines. However, it does kind of change once uh, 
you get to page 21 and you get this image of Grundy. And I kind of understand if I can give you an image in your brain of what Grundy looks like to me. If you remember the movie Rock and Roll, which oddly enough, my good friend Thomas DJ covered a while back on an obscured movie show over in Better in the Dark. The character of Mock from Rock and Roll kind of reminds me of what Solomon Grundy looks like on this page or vice versa. It's a weird kind of look, and he's got very distended, skinny arms with long, spidery fingers. It's just a weird design element for Grundy. Page 23, nice little Easter egg here. The general leading the army in the swamp is named Zachariah Nodell, obviously a nice little homage to Martin Nodell, the artist for the Green Lantern stories of this time. Then moving on to page 26, I know Doiby had a cab that was his own that he called Gertrude or Goytrude in his own vernacular. But where did he get a swamp boat? And is there a swamp outside Gotham? I guess there is, so there you go. But after that, I don't really have any notes until page 42, where obviously in this story, Grundy is supposed to be an analog to the Hulk, as he's essentially just this swamp monster who doesn't want anyone to come into his swamp. He just wants to be left alone, which is... I'm fine with that. That's a good characterization. I think in the original story, however, the people who encountered Grundy in the swamp made him their boss of their crime syndicate, which I guess works for the 1940s, but didn't work, wouldn't have worked so well here. But then my final note is on page 48, there's a nice little shot of the JSA coming in to help out. And of course, we've got Dr. Midnight, Dr. Fate, the Spectre, the Flash, which Green Lantern wonders why didn't he get here sooner, Starman, the uh, Golden Age Adam, Wonder Woman, Hawkman, and Sandman. So it's it's nice to see the JSA show up in this book. And even though they're not front and center all that much, it's, it's nice to see that they're at least along for the ride. But that does it for the issue. It was a nice little fun diversion, a nice little step back into the golden age and a sort of retelling of what happened there and sort of a retconning of it and a nice little, like I said, an enjoyable little diversion. But next time on the show, we'll be getting back into Green Lantern. We'll be finding out just what happened with Jenny in the next issue of Green Lantern, number 152, where I guess we'll find out why the heck she is so afraid of someone killing her. Is it her brother? Is it someone else? Once again, I don't know because, unfortunately, I haven't read it yet. But I'll get to reading it, and I'll get to telling you about it the next time we talk on another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. Until then, everyone have a good week. Bye. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Inkle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books could be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers, and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys Podcast, and you can subscribe to the show there. You can search for me on Facebook as well, and now you can find me there, as it was a requirement of my new Demonsacore contract. But it doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Candy Crush group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern.
The opening music for today's show was Aerosmith and their song, Back in the Saddle, off the album Rocks. Now, as always, you can pick up this album, pick up this MP3, or pick up this single from a myriad number of places. But the best place to go to pick up this kind of music would be Amazon.com. And the best place to go to to get to Amazon.com is the website 2TrueFreaks.com. Whenever you go to 2TrueFreaks.com and click the Amazon banner at the upper left-hand corner of the webpage, you'll be transported to Amazon where you could buy music from Aerosmith, Boston, The Cars, or whatever fine classic rock band you'd like to listen to. And all of the prices are reasonably low. And every time you use the link at 2TrueFreaks to go to Amazon and purchase something, a small amount of your purchase price gets shunted back to the website. It won't cost you anything extra, but it really helps the site out. So anytime you're thinking about buying music, entertainment, games, movies, whatever from Amazon.com, make sure you use the link at 2TrueFreaks.com. <laughs> 